We'll read this morning from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, this is the word of God which lives and abides forever because all flesh is grass and the glory of man is as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. You may be seated. Well, I usually conclude our scripture reading by quoting that passage from Isaiah 40, verse 8, but this morning I simply backed up and read a few verses from chapter 1 where Peter quotes that passage in Isaiah. And it's an amazing quotation, it's an amazing idea that the Word of God endures and lives forever. It is the abiding enduring word of God that that Peter exhorts us to at the beginning of chapter 2 to desire in the way that newborn infants desire milk because it is the word of God which helps us to grow as Christians. Well, this morning we're going to talk about the subject of holiness and since I often begin my sermons with a quote, here's one that I liked that kind of ties together our subject of holiness with Peter's Uh, exhortation to desire the word. This is from Pastor Joel Beakey over in Grand Rapids, and he says this, do not expect to grow in holiness if you spend little time alone with God and do not take his word seriously. If you would grow in holiness, you must spend time with God in his word. And Peter said that's, that's how we grow, by feeding on the Word of God. So this morning, let's feed on the Word of God together as we discuss this subject of holiness. Now, holiness is a concept that we 
we know it's important, right? We know that the subject of holiness is, is one that, that is important in the scriptures. We, we recognize that holiness is the defining attribute of God. We know that he is described as holy, holy, holy. We know that we are to be holy as he is holy. But this morning, as we turn our attention once again to the subject of the church, I want us to pause and reflect on what it means to be holy, not just as individuals, but as a congregation, as a church. What does the Apostle Peter mean by describing the church as a holy nation? So the first thing I want to do this morning is to show you that Peter is, first of all, speaking of and to the church. And then I'll show you where he's getting this idea of a holy nation as being the church, being a holy nation. And then we'll talk about what that means for us as a congregation. So let's look at the overall context of Peter's letter and how he addresses uh, his readers, the ones he expects to read this letter. In chapter 1, verse 2, he calls them elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He says in verse 10, the prophets prophesied of the grace that would come to you, which is in line with the way Paul writes elsewhere concerning the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church, that it was prophesied, foretold in the Old Testament. Peter speaks of his readers' previous conduct, which he says they received by tradition from your fathers in chapter 1, verse 18. Well, had he been speaking about Jews exclusively, uh, he would have said our fathers or the fathers, himself being a Jew, but he says your fathers. He says that they are those who through him, that is through Christ, believe in God in chapter 1, verse 21. It was the preaching of the good news of Christ that brought his readers to faith in God. He says in chapter 1, verse 23, that they were born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, making the point that it is by the new birth worked by the Spirit in our hearts that they come to be saved, and not that they are born again this time as Jews, but rather that they are born again spiritually by the Spirit. He says in chapter 2, verse 10, that they were once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Once were not a people. Does not describe the Jews of Peter's day. He would have to be going all the way back to the call of Abraham in order to apply this to the Jews. He closes his letters, this letter by saying, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. His reference uh, to Babylon here is uh, a veiled reference to the church in Rome, Rome being Babylon. Though there were most certainly some Jews among the congregation in Rome, their number would have largely been comprised of Greco-Romans. So Peter is clearly writing this letter to Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. He calls them the pilgrims of the dispersion in chapter 1, verse 1. Now, I belabor this point that he is speaking to the church made up of those who are both Jews and what would have been called Gentiles, non-Jews, because of my next point, and that is that Peter uses a lot of Old Testament language throughout this letter uh, 
and he does a very amazing thing. He uses Old Testament terminology to equate the New Covenant church with the Old Covenant national Israel. And by the way, when I say Old Covenant, I mean the national covenants made collectively with Abraham's descendants, the Abrahamic covenant of promise, the Mosaic covenant of law, the Davidic covenant of kingship. Taken together, these national covenants compromise what we often refer to as the Old Covenant. So Peter is using language from the Old Testament and applying it to the church. And he does it in surprising ways. He calls them the pilgrims of the dispersion in chapter 1, verse 1. This is an allusion to the Babylonian captivity, to the exile that they experienced where Israel was taken out of the land of Canaan and scattered among the nations in Syria and Babylon. He tells them to have, in verse 12, to have their conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, this is surprising. Peter uses the word Gentiles to refer to those who are not believers. In other words, the designation of Gentile, which used to mean non-Jew, now means non-Christian. He does the same thing in chapter 4 when he says, we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Peter includes himself in this, who is a Jew by birth, and he says, we spent our past lifetime as Gentiles, but now we are Christians. But most startling of all, Peter applies the language of the Mosaic Covenant when Israel was first established as a nation to the church. He says in verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice that there's a contrast here uh, to another group. He says, but you are, in contrast to those who are not. His readers are you who believe, in verse 7, and that is contrasted with those who are disobedient, those who have rejected Christ. Peter says in verse 7, therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Now, Peter quotes here from Psalm 118, and Jesus quotes this psalm and applies it to the Jewish leaders. In Matthew chapter 21, it says, Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. And then Jesus has a conversation with them. And it says later, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting this same psalm, Psalm 118. Then he says, Therefore... I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. 
Now, the shocking thing is that Peter is now making the argument that the nation, the kingdom is to be given to, is the church. He calls the church by four titles in verse 9. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. These were titles that were given to national Israel under the Old Covenant. Peter goes on to say that the church is to proclaim the praises of him who called you. So listen to the words of Isaiah chapter 43. My people, my chosen, this people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. You can see that this passage is in the background as Peter writes his letter, and he calls them a chosen generation, my people, my chosen. He says they are my own special, his own special people, and that they are to proclaim the praises of the God who called them, just as Isaiah had recorded. The other Old Testament passage in the background of verse 9 is Exodus 19, and this is a very important one. This is uh, in Exodus 19, God has just delivered Jacob's descendants from slavery in Egypt. He's he's brought them out. He's led them into uh, the wilderness and to Mount Sinai, and he is there dictating the law to Moses. And God tells Moses in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Well, you can see that Peter had this passage in mind and took from it the idea of a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So the new covenant church is the nation to which the kingdom is given, according to Christ's words in Matthew 5. Peter uses the language of the old covenant to describe this new covenant church as a holy nation. So we're going to ignore the other three terms that Peter applied to the church and focus our attention on this idea of the church as a holy nation. What does that mean? Well, the first thing we need to do at this point is to understand what it means to be holy. We see this term throughout the scriptures. We've we've read it this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This term is most often applied to God. He is holy. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the most holy. This Puritan Matthew Henry has commented, No attribute of God is more dreadful to sinners than his holiness. Now, why? Why would this be so? Why would sinners dread God's holiness? Well, as I said at the beginning, the scriptures testify that God is holy, holy, holy. Scripture says that God is just, that God is love, that God is righteous, that God is light. But none of these other attributes of God are raised to the third degree. No other aspect of God's being is stated in this way. God is holy, holy, holy. He is a thrice holy God. In his work, The Existence and Attributes of God, Stephen Charnock defines God's holiness, interestingly, both negatively and positively. 
So he uses a negative way of describing it and then a positive way of describing it. First, he says the holiness of God negatively is a perfect and unpolluted freedom from all evil. God's holiness is his freedom from all evil. Positively, it is the rectitude or integrity of the divine nature. And what he means by this is that God's holiness is his perfect purity of goodness. There is no evil in him. He is perfectly pure. And positively stated, what he means is that God acts in accordance with his holiness at all times. All of God's actions are in perfect accord with his perfect moral purity. Why this frightens sinners is because we instinctively recognize that God, in his perfect purity and goodness, is completely unlike our sinfulness. And since he always acts in accordance with his perfection, that means that his actions towards sinners are going to be acts of judgment. As Charnock comments nearly a hundred pages later, a hundred pages, he writes on the holiness of God. And then he comments and he says, since the fall, this attribute which renders God most amiable in himself renders him most hateful to his apostate creature. It is impossible that he who loves iniquity can affect that which is irreconcilably contrary to the iniquity he loves. There is nothing so contrary to the sinfulness of man as the holiness of God, and nothing is thought of by the sinner with so much detestation. God's holiness is his otherness. He is holy. He alone is holy. His holiness condemns us in our sinfulness. So we might ask then, well, how? How can the church be a holy nation, seeing that it is made up of individual members who are not, in and of themselves, holy? How can it be a morally perfect and pure nation? Well, the words that are translated as holy in the Scriptures, both in the Old and the New Testament, in Hebrew and Greek, at their root both mean to cut or to separate. Now, if we think about how that applies to God, it becomes obvious. He is separate from his creation. He is altogether holy, and he is the only one who is altogether holy. He is God, and everything else is not. He is separate from his creation, cut off. But when the word is applied to anything other than God, it means, in the words of Herman Bavink, that This thing, whatever it is we're speaking of as holy, has been set apart from general use and placed in a special relation to God and his service. So as we read in the scripture of holy ground in Exodus 3 verse 5, or a holy Sabbath in Exodus 16.23, or a holy place in Exodus 29.31, or a holy nation in Exodus 19.6, among other things. Holy ground was ground that was set apart for use by God as at the burning bush. The Holy Sabbath is one day set apart from the rest, first for use by God as he takes his rest 
seat sitting on his throne, having finished his work of creation, and then later set apart for man in service to God. The holy place in the tabernacle and the temple was set apart from all other places on earth as the location where God would manifest his presence among his people and where they would gather to worship him. Holy nation, then, is a nation that has been set apart from all the other nations of the world to serve God. But as Bavink helpfully suggests, holiness is something more than merely being set apart. It is by means of washing, anointing, sacrifice, the sprinkling of blood, etc., to divest a thing of the character it has in common with all other things and to impress upon it another stamp, a stamp uniquely its own, which it must bear and display everywhere. So you can see that like Charnock, Bavink is using both a negative and a positive in order to describe holiness. Negatively, it means to purify something by removing from it all the characteristics it shares in common with other things. Positively, it means to give it a new character, a new likeness. So we might say that a holy people is a people that have been cleansed from their sin, that which is common to all men and contrary to the perfect purity of God, has been removed from them, and then they've been remade into the image of God. We see how this idea is applied to the nation of Israel Leviticus 20, 26, And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Separated from the peoples, from the other nations, holy to God. And what made them so different was their obedience to God's law. Deuteronomy 28 Verse 9, the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself just as he has sworn to you if you keep his commandments, the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So a holy nation is one in which the behavior of the citizens and their affections are conformed to the perfect purity of God's holiness rather than the sinfulness of fallen man. And this is what sets them apart from other nations and other peoples on the earth. In the Old Covenant, this was the nation of Israel, but in the New Covenant, it is the church. And we'll come back to this idea of holiness shortly, but let's take a minute now to talk about what it means for the church to be a nation. When we think of a nation, we most often have the idea of a large group of people, more than one extended family, though they may be united by a common descent. Right? We might think of certain nations that predominantly are made up of one ethnic majority. But consider Israel. As they entered the land of Egypt at the end of Genesis, there were 70 people in Jacob's family. When they left Egypt 400 years later, there's a million of them. We wouldn't call the 70 a nation. We'd say that's a family. But when there's a million of them, it would be a far stretch to say that's a family we would call them a nation or a people group. They share a common ancestry, but their numbers, the sheer volume of who they are, designates them as a people group or a nation rather than a family. The church, in like fashion, began with 11 disciples and a few other disciples in the upper room, but quickly grew into thousands and then hundreds of thousands 
and then millions. Historians tell us that within six months of Pentecost, there were 100,000 Christians in Jerusalem and surrounding areas. It's a people group. It's not just a family. But nations are more than just a people group. They are a people group who share a history, a culture, and a language. Well, the church is a nation in this sense as well. The history of God's people is our national history. The culture of the kingdom of God is the culture of the church. It's our national culture. The language of the scripture is our national language. So in all these senses, the church has the marks of a nation. But we usually consider a people with a common ancestry, a shared history, a common culture, a shared language. We only consider them to be a nation rather than just a people group when they inhabit a particular geographic territory and have their own distinct government. Well, this is true of the church as well. Our government is the kingship of Christ. It is his law that governs us. He is our king. We give our allegiance to him. While he has said that his kingdom is not of this world, he has also promised us an inheritance in the world to come, in the new creation. So in that way, the church resembles the nation of Israel during the time of wilderness wandering before they took possession of the land of Canaan. Or during the time of exile when they were scattered among the nations, ruled by pagan kings according to the flesh, but still ruled by God as their king. And they longed and they hoped with an eager expectation for the promise of God to gather them from among the nations and establish the throne of David once again with a son of David to sit on that throne forever and reign in righteousness and peace. That is our hope as well. That's the longing with which we long for Christ's return. So let's tie these things together now and talk about what it means that the church is a holy nation. I would summarize it like this. The church is a holy nation set apart by God the Father, justified by the blood of Christ, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit that we might live in holy society with one another. Peter uses this Old Testament language of being a special people set apart by God, and that's why he says his readers are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is what it means to be elect, to be set apart by God the Father as holy, as distinct from others, dedicated to His service. The church's holiness is rooted in the calling and the election of God, not in our own moral purity. If the church's holiness was dependent on our moral purity, I don't know in what sense we could call the church holy. The holiness of the church must be grounded in the calling and election of God. He set us apart according to the pleasure of His goodwill. We don't set ourselves apart by our own moral perfection. We have none. If you embrace the common you know, evangelical assumption of libertarian free will regarding salvation, the idea that, well, God gives everyone a chance, and those some accept him and some reject him. It's up to the individual to decide. If you embrace that idea, then the church's holiness becomes dependent upon its own moral superiority. Well, why did you get saved and your neighbor didn't? 
What was better about you? What was more godly, more spiritual, more morally pure? Why did you embrace Christ and your neighbor did not? If God gives everyone an equal chance, then you have to believe the difference lies with you. That means that the church is separated from other peoples of the earth because each one of us was just a little bit better, a little bit wiser, a little bit more holy than our neighbor was. This is where the idea of holier than thou comes from because some Christians walk around with that way of thinking. But it's wrong. It's the calling and election of God that sets the church apart. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. This is why Peter makes it clear that those who reject Christ, he says in verse 8, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation. The church is a holy nation set apart by God the Father and justified by the blood of Christ. Remember the quote that I shared from Herman Bavink that said holiness is something more than merely being set apart. He said it is by means of washing, anointing, sacrifice, the sprinkling of blood to divest a thing of the character it has in common with all other things. Now to divest means to strip or to remove, to take off something. Just as Adam was divested of his inadequate clothing of leaves and had them replaced with garments of skins, Joseph was stripped of his prison garments and clothed in fresh, clean robes before being brought before Pharaoh. So too, God strips us of the guilt of our sin and clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. C.S. Lewis created a wonderful picture of this in book three of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In that book, there's a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it, the opening line of the book. But Eustace gives in to pride and greed and anger and envy and a whole host of sins, and he gets himself turned into a dragon. But this causes him a great deal of pain. He's got a a gold band around his arm and his arm is swelled up as he turned into a dragon and it's causing him pain. And so one night, a lion shows him a well of water that will heal his hurts if he would simply bathe in it. But the lion tells him that he must first undress. And Eustace realizes this means he has to remove his dragon skin like a snake shedding its skin. And so he tries to do this himself several times. But each time, though he removes a layer of skin, he's still a dragon. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just laid down flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling that stuff peel off. Aslan, who represents Christ, divested Eustace of his sin. He then tosses him into the well, representing baptism, and then draws him out and dresses him in clothing. It's a beautiful picture of our justification 
our sins stripped away, cleansed by the blood of Christ, and clothed in his righteousness. My favorite part of the story is when Eustace tells the story to Edmund, another character in the book, and he asks him if it was perhaps just a dream. And Edmund says, no, it was real. And Eustace asks, well, how can you be certain? And Edmund says, well, there are the clothes, for one thing, and you have been, well, undragoned for another. What do you think it was then, asked Eustace. I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. Our justification, the stripping away of the guilt of our sin to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that is our undragoning. It's not something we can do for ourselves, as Eustace discovered. It's something that only Christ can do for us. If we have any holiness about us, well, there are the clothes for one thing. And if our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west, then you have been, well, undragoned. Then what has happened? I think you've seen Christ. That's what's happened. So the church is a nation of those who have been made holy in the sense of having their guilt of their sin removed and replaced with the perfect righteousness of Christ. But it doesn't stop there. The church is a holy nation set apart by God the Father, justified by the blood of Christ, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The church's holiness is not simply a judicial declaration on God's part. It is a real and tangible separation from sin and a remaking into the image of Christ. Remember, Bavink said that holiness was something more than mere separation, more than mere being set apart, that it involved being divested of the common things that we share with other humanity, which is our sin nature, and, he says, to impress upon it another stamp. Well, that stamp impressed upon the church is the likeness of Christ. Peter wrote in, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, "'Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober.'" And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. In his book, The Pursuit of Righteousness, Jerry Bridges says, many Christians have what we might call a cultural holiness. They adapt to the character and behavior pattern of Christians around them. But God has not called us to be like those around us. He has called us to be like himself. Holiness is nothing less than the conformity to the image of God. This is what Scripture calls us to as a church, not to keep God's law in order to earn his favor or in order to attain holiness, but rather to be like him in holiness and purity of thought and deed because that is our identity. We are those who have been truly justified in God's sight. The guilt of our sin has been paid in full by the death of Christ on the cross. His righteousness in keeping the law has been credited to our account. We are holy. This is not a legal fiction. We are holy in truth. 
We are to be conformed to the holy image of Christ, who is our righteousness. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Peter says in verses 11 and 12, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, you have been undragoned. Stop breathing fire at one another. Stop acting like dragons and start acting like those who bear the image of Christ. Peter spends the rest of the letter describing what that honorable conduct or holy conduct looks like. Those good works that the world is to observe us doing, submission of citizens to the civil government, even tyrannical ones, submission of (laughs) slaves to masters, even the harsh ones, submission of wives to husbands, even the unbelieving ones, submission to the will of God, even in suffering, submission to the leadership of the church, even though they aren't perfect. Submission of the leadership to Christ. Submission of all believers to one another. This is what holiness of life looks like. It's a life of submission. A life of conformity to the image of Christ. Christ, our Savior, who humbled himself according to the flesh, submitted himself to the Father's will, enduring the cross for the joy that was set before him. Holiness is not self-aggrandizement. It's not about making much of ourselves. It is about submission and humility and suffering in this life for the hope of glory in the life to come. Now, this doesn't sound appealing to our sin nature. That's why a life of holiness, apart from the work of the Spirit, sanctifying us is impossible. This life of submission and holiness must be lived out in the community of the church. The church is a holy nation set apart by God the Father, justified by the blood of Christ, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit so that we might live in holy society with one another. A nation is a group of people who share a culture, a history, a government, and a location. The church, as we have seen, fulfills all these marks of being a nation, but this means that We, as individual believers, are to live our lives of submission in the society of the saints, in the church. All the one another's of the New Testament are very agreeable to us if we can hold them at arm's length as being applied to a hypothetical another. We can talk about one another, love one another, submit to one another, as long as the other, one another, is hypothetical. They get uncomfortable, though, when we apply them to real people, people that we know, people that we are in community with, under authority with, sharing our lives with, people who know our faults and we know their faults. This is where it becomes a work of the Spirit in our hearts to humble us. It's also where the beauty of holiness is best seen. Imagine a group of people connected to one another by shared submission to Christ as King, who love one another sacrificially, in humility preferring one another over self, who repent of sin with gladness, 
who offer one another forgiveness with joy, who delight in obedience to the law of God, a group of people having compassion for one another, loving as brothers, tender-hearted, courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's chapter 3, verses 8 through 12 of 1 Peter. This is what it looks like to live together in a holy society, the people of God, a holy nation set apart, divested of our sin, undragoned, created anew in the image of Christ, new creatures, submitting to his pure and perfect law, living together as a holy nation governed by a holy king whom we love. C.S. Lewis said, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. This is a society that we would all long to be a part of. And we've been given the opportunity in the church, a holy nation. To such a people, Christ is precious, as Peter says in verse 7. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious If we would conduct ourselves as a holy nation in the purity of holiness, we must, as he said in verse 2, desire the pure milk of the word. For it is in the word that Christ, our King, is revealed to us. As Charles Spurgeon once said, if you think you can walk in holiness without keeping up perpetual fellowship with Christ, you have made a great mistake. If you would be holy, you must live close to Christ. We live close to Christ in the fellowship of the church, which is gathered to Christ as his people, united to him by faith, a holy nation set apart by God the Father, justified by the blood of Christ, and sanctified together by the Holy Spirit, that we might live in holy society with one another and in service to our holy king. Let's pray.